Welcome to the You Don't Own the Lake podcast. My name is Brian Andreka, owner and full-time fishing guide of Kansas Angling Experience Guide Service. Join me here once a week as well as on the YouTube channel with special guests to discuss a wide variety of topics in the fishing world from Kansas fishing to baits to presentations, boats, electronics, and just general all-around talking. Thanks to everyone for tuning in and hope you enjoy the episode. All right, boys and girls, thank you for tuning in to another uh, kind of long overdue, not necessarily super long overdue episode of the You Don't Own the Lake podcast. Uh, unfortunately, things are just getting a little bit too crazy on the uh, guide and content front in general for me to be doing a once a week podcast. So I think we're going to try and go to a once every other week situation. But in the meantime, today, we have a super special guest that I've really been looking forward to talking to ever since him and I got in touch back in December. Somebody who I have followed uh, ever since probably the first week that I moved to Kansas back in 2000-ish, something like that. But Craig Johnson is one of the longest standing KDWP fisheries biologists left in the state as far as I'm concerned. Probably the only one that I respect the most uh, that I've ever been in touch with, uh, short of Richard Sanders. Rest his soul, who is the fisheries biologist here in the northeast part of the state. But Craig is going to provide us in this episode with so much insight on uh, walleye numbers. Uh, we're going to talk about wipers. We're going to talk about the walleye spawn here in Kansas. Just answering a lot of questions that I have ha personally had myself, as well as a lot of you guys, the audience, clients that I've had in my boat questions that I've really only been able to speculate on based on hearsay. So this will not be the first time that we talk to Craig because we're going to keep in touch a lot more, um, especially as it pertains to walleyes throughout the year. And we're going to go over my numbers versus his numbers and um, just a really, really good talk and insight into our Kansas reservoirs and the stocking and all the effort that those guys put in. So I hope you guys enjoy this conversation as much as I did, and I wish it could have lasted a lot longer, but we caught Craig at work today, so I tried to uh, not take up too much of his time. So I will end this intro now and get right into the conversation. I hope you guys enjoy it, and we'll see you at the end of the episode. Cool, man. All right. Well, we're happy to have you on the podcast, Craig. This has obviously been a long time coming between uh, the two of us, and I know we had talked several months ago, kind of in that December time period about several different things. And that's, I guess, kind of what we're going to go about now. But I'll just briefly introduce Craig, Craig Johnson here. Um, I mean, just a Kansas legend as it pertains to fisheries biology, been around as long as I can remember ever since I moved to the state from Wisconsin. But I'm not going to get too carried away with intros. So we're going to let you just kind of give your whole entire background, because like I said, you've been around a long time and done so much for the state on the fisheries side of things. So I want to let you kind of tell your story to kick off the conversation. So take it away, buddy. Thank you, Brian. Nice to be on here. Um, bear with me. I'm not much of a podcaster. This is kind of a new thing to me. So I'll, I'll try not to muck it up too bad. Um, my name is Craig Johnson. I'm the district fisheries biologist here in the El Dorado district. I've been here since about 2003. So I've been working on these lakes for a while yet. I started with the agency in 1992 uh, is when I first got on. I uh, worked as a wildlife biologist for a couple of years till I got my foot in the door in 97 as a fisheries biologist. Worked in the Kansas City District. I had Hillsdale Reservoir from 97 till 2003. Uh, got to work on those lakes up there. Uh, a lot of urban urban lakes, high pressure lakes. Uh, Hillsdale was 
Uh, good Lake still is a uh, high pressure lake. Uh, learned a yep. lot there. And then in 2003, I had the opportunity to come down to the El Dorado district and have a five county district down here that I've worked on since 03 and, and love every minute of it. So do you still get any time to maybe do some fishing yet or no? Yeah, I, I still like to do that. That's obviously why I'm in this gig, I guess. I was a fisherman before I was a biologist, of course. So it just kind of led me in a different different way. I uh, never could get enough of it. Um, fishing lately, uh, life happens, things like that. I've got two two daughters that aren't as young as they used to be. They've been taking up quite a bit of time in a good way, uh, going to college, playing college sports. So I spend a lot of time in the bleachers again than what I used to, but uh, that's a goal for 23 for me this year is to get some more time in the boat the fun way. I spend a lot of time in a boat, but uh, rod and reel fishing is going to be be on the priority list this year for sure. Yeah. Well, awesome, man. Well, it's good to hear the backstory. Um, like I said before, you've been around a long time. I mean, I remember seeing videos on your YouTube channel from, <laughs> I mean, probably way back then. I mean, early 2000s of just, I mean, just random GoPro stuff, but just to see some of those fish from some of those videos on the channel. Back when I first started fishing in Kansas, I had no idea that uh, like walleyes, for example, even existed like that in the state. So that was always really fun to see. Um, but I guess we're going to, we're going to try and unfortunately I, well, slash fortunately, that's kind of the good thing about podcasts is we can just kind of jump back and forth and not digress too much on certain topics. But one thing that you wanted to talk about, uh, in specific was the April walleye findings from your study this year out that way, um, in South central Kansas. And obviously I'm going to have a bunch of questions and I've, I've talked to a lot of my clients in the boat ever since we talked about uh, doing this podcast and just various things that they're really anxious to hear from you. Um, because again, I mean, like we'd talked about before, I'd known Richard Sanders, who was the fisheries biologist um, out this way in the northeast part of the state for so long, ever since the beginning of uh, Clinton Lake and uh, rest his soul is no longer with us. But um anxious to hear a, a lot of things involving wipers and walleyes and just the fishery in general, especially coming from me, a, a full-time fishing guide that's on the lake 280 to 300 days a year and stuff like that. So um, I guess because all that stuff is fresh in your mind, we can start this conversation off with um, maybe you just talking about kind of how or what, uh, I don't even really know how to lead into this because it's your thing. Um, everything that you want to talk about as it pertains to walleyes during the spawn here in Kansas. So I'll let you well, run some numbers by us. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff there. I'm kind of, yeah, you're going to have to remind me some of that stuff. We'll start off with the walleye stuff. Anyway. I have a really bad habit of doing that. Just, <laughs> I just, I just go. <laughs> Uh, the walleye spawn is kind of where the Kansas fisheries biologist field season kicks off. Uh, we spend a lot of time in the winter months attending meetings, uh, crunching a lot of numbers, all the fun stuff that you do all spring, summer, and fall as far as getting a hold of fish and and uh, sampling them, getting all the data and everything. You spend all the winter months crunching, seeing if we need any new regulations, putting together stockings, uh, requests, and all that kind of stuff. But the walleye spawn is the big project that really kicks off the Kansas field season and normally that third week ish of march is normally when we get around you know there's fish up there before we get started the thing is we want to be able to get in and get out efficiently as as possible 
that way we don't have a bunch of gear out there in the way of uh, anglers when they're trying to fish. Uh, we don't want to fish when we're not catching that much. So over the years, I uh, kind of fine-tuned that into, I guess we'll call it a a system, I guess, that works pretty good. Um, usually about the 25th, we've kind of settled on that. It works good for the hatchery. This stuff kind of changes every year, but just timing is very important. Everything with fisheries management is timing. And it all, you know, you got to be able to take eggs when the fish are spawning. So that's a big part of it, too. So um, about the 25th seems to be a good one we've landed on. We miss a few fish, you know, uh, but it also works out pretty good. Um, start around March 25th, get the gear out there. And basically, we've been running. I'm going to mess this up. We've been doing El Dorado, <laughs> of course. I've been running that one. Hillsdale's been going since 1998. There's been an egg taking operation there annually since 98. So that's been a big one over the years. Kerwin's another big one. Mark Shaw runs that one out there. It's been very productive. He gets some marvelous <laughs> hatch rates out there, 80 some percent hatch rates on the eggs that come out of his nets and get fertilized and head to the hatchery and everything and take um, sauger from Perry Reservoir for sauger production and also take the boy saugers from Perry to make sauge So we've got several lakes that are running. I think those were the big ones this year. I don't think I'm missing any. I'll come back to it if I did. But anyway, that gets started. We'd normally have a crew of at least six guys. Uh, here at El Dorado, we run two boats every morning so we can get out, get the fish out of the nets, get them back, and start working those. So it's not really data collection. I mean, you can collect data off the fish that you get, compare it from sure. year to year. Most of the stuff we do for actual fish management and everything is done in the fall that we do with our fall test netting. And, you know, we do that on all the reservoirs and everything every every or every fall. But... uh yeah. While I so that so I'm I'm just going to kind of double back to things that you had mentioned in that portion. Um, so, do they put out nets at Perry? Then you're saying for saugers, or yeah. how do they collect that data? Yeah, those are all. Uh, those are a little bit earlier, quite a bit earlier, actually. The saugers sure. are yep. a lot earlier. Yep, and I was gonna. Really that's that's one thing I was gonna mention to the viewers too. Um, when we're we kind of go through these conversations, that saugers always spawn first. So like when we're talking about the walleye spawn, usually when the walleyes are spawning, I'm in like peak sauger season. I mean, they're the first ones to be back done and hungry. Um, we catch all of our pre-spawn saugers, like the big twenty to twenty-two inchers that weigh you know three and a half, four pounds. Sometimes those pre-spawners way way early because they do it first. So. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Nick Kramer's a fish biologist up there at Perry and he's, okay. he's a good two weeks ahead of everybody else. So he runs mm -hmm. out and it's a little bit shorter deal. They, they uh, are able to take the whole fish on those instead of just taking the eggs like we do on the walleye lakes. And those fish get a free, free trip to the Milford hatchery and they hold on to those since it's a timing thing, since you have to have the walleye a couple of weeks later, right? Female walleye yep. in order to mm -hmm. fertilize with sauger sperm. That's a couple of weeks ahead of time, you know, again, timing. So those fish get held in tanks and it's all, you know, able to be controlled as far as water temperature and everything else and uh, can work with them that way. So, yeah, he's a couple of weeks earlier there. Yeah, that's really cool. Well, that's something that um, I mean, just again, th throughout this conversation, I'm going to learn so much, but I had no idea that they put that they netted saugers there and actually physically took them out of the lake to go to Milford. Um to have everything done versus Hillsdale where all that stuff is done right at Jayhawk Marina right. where when they take those nets out they you get to you know 
the general public can just go down and, and watch them do it, which I've, I've done before a long time ago when we first moved to Kansas and it is so, so cool. <laughs> but, um, so I guess the main reason, and this is like probably question number one from myself and everybody else that I've talked to when I told them that we were going to speak on stuff like this is why is there no natural reproduction of walleyes. I shouldn't say no. I mean, I'm sure I, I feel like the number that I heard a while back was like less than a half a percent natural reproduction rate. But what are the reasons why our walleyes have, have no natural reproduction in the state or little to no natural reproduction? Uh, you know, we're really on the Southern edge of the walleye range anyway. So we're kind of pushing those boundaries anyway, but you know, mm -hmm. the actual reasons why, you know, that's something we're still trying to figure out a hundred percent, you know, if we knew exactly why and how to fix it, we wouldn't have the problem that we have. Sure. But uh, there's a lot of different things in there. You know, uh, you look at a natural lake where they do better up in their, their native range and everything. They're quite a bit different than what we have. You know, we have a, a lot of wide open lakes. We get a lot of wind. That's actually been some of the things that have been uh, looked at as well as just wind and wind energy waves uh, coming in and hitting those areas. A lot of the lakes where they like to spawn some more than others when they get in on the rocky dams, the riprap and stuff. Usually that's wide open to the North Pole. You know, you get those winds whipping down there and every now and then you get those big, strong winds coming in. So when they hatch, fry aren't real strong swimmers or anything. So that's been something that's been looked at. You know, we try to make up for that when we stock fish back into the lakes and obviously don't take all your fry that you get or your fingerlings and go put them on the face of the dam to where there's nothing to protect those fish. We're right. looking up reservoir. You try to look at temperatures. You try to look at plankton blooms and different things like that to get it around. But some of it might be habitat. You know, some of our lakes... Uh, don't have as much rock, don't have as much hard substrate. You know, Cheney's a, a big one down here for years. When I first got down here back in early 2000s, we used to collect eggs over at Cheney. It's had some problems in the past, but most of that is either clay or sand or mud over that yeah. way. So, they're, you know, those fish come in hard to the man-made structures, which is pretty much a slick dam over yep. there, but it's it's the only hard substrate that they've got. So as far as why we don't have that, you know, there's a couple of lakes that we do have some natural recruitment in. One of them's Wilson. Wilson's got a lot of rock in it. So you kind of throw yep. that one out there. You know, it's kind of wide open too. Um, you know, maybe some big fish too. Yeah. Big fish out there. Protected areas and things like that. Cedar Bluff is the other one that we have that uh, has been naturally recruiting for a long time. Dave Spalsbury, the fish biologist out there, tracks that population very, very closely. He's got some awesome data with that and what's going on out there. And it's not stocked hardly at all. Uh, there was, I think he, since he's been there, he's may have stocked once or twice and didn't really see any big gains from doing that either. So wow. it's one of those deals. If it's not doing any good, why do it when other lakes are in need? Sure. those fish. And the other one that we got that has been successful for a lot of years is Marion Reservoir. Okay. It's it's kind of a wide open lake, but still it's got some shallow areas. It's got some rocky areas, uh, some reefy type areas and stuff. But, you know, if you look at them and try to do the apples, oranges or oranges, oranges or whatever to say, why is this lake capable of it? And this one isn't. It's kind of hard to do, but we do have some that, that are capable of that. And we do have some other ones that are, you know, put on good year classes if they're stocked on a regular basis. But that's, mm -hmm. that's a million dollar question. Why and how much and, and everything else. So some years yeah. things work, other years things don't work. So lots of yep. variability too that makes it tough. Yep. 
Yeah. And that I totally understand that. I mean, that's what I usually always tell people too. I mean, like where I'm from in Wisconsin, the, the natural glacial lakes versus the man-made reservoirs down here. I mean, you've up there endless weed beds or just places for those fish to go or those fry to go up here. I mean, there's really not a, a whole lot as, as it pertains to the reservoirs and stuff. So, I mean, that's kind of what I chalk it up to and it's tough for those fish to make it, but we're thankful to have those stocking efforts. Um, available and obviously where i fish there we don't really see a shortage of walleye saugers and now uh like you had told me back in december saw guys as well mm-hmm. so we're really blessed to have this this whole program and and all of you guys taking care of it so that's all really interesting stuff um so i guess i guess the next question would be how do how does kdwp decide where they're going to take those fish from because uh you know the main lake here where i got on uh, there's, I've never seen any nets, uh, versus, you know, Hillsdale. I mean, there's giants in there and everybody pretty much knows that. And again, like you said, high pressure, high traffic area, but it still has those fish. So how, how do you guys decide on a year to year basis? Do you just go off of your previous data to say it's going to be the same every year or, you know, like maybe you're going to go to Melbourne and do it this year or Clinton or Pomona or stuff like that. So how does that all kind of come to fruition in the end? A lot of the lakes that you've mentioned have at one time been uh, egg collection sites over the years. Sure. Melbourne used to sure. be one, you know, back in the early 90s, used to do Melbourne. Uh, you know, like I said, Cheney had been one before uh, we started again, I think seven years ago, whatever year that would be. This was the seventh year that we've taken them here on this run at El Dorado back in the late 80s, probably early 90s, somewhere in there. I don't know exactly when it was as before my mm. time here, but you know, this lake used to be that way. Uh used to take them up at Milford for a while too. Oh yeah. Things kind of changed there, but usually there's just that cycle, you know, it's, it's either yep. good and worth going to, or things kind of tail off or things change. And that's usually what happens. But, uh, um, you know, we look for an easy lake to go to. Um, that's, you know, kind of sounds bad to say, but, uh, historically, Hillsdale, you could go there and run. We used to run just eight trap nets on the face of the dam. I think they're up to maybe 10 now and may try a few other places to uh, get a few extra fish and everything in there. But that's not a whole lot to do in a morning to go out and pull in eight traps. Uh, Sometimes they have 350 males and, you know, 10 or 20 great big females in them or something. So it's a lot of fish, but uh, Mm. it's easy to do. It's easy to run traps on that dam up there just because of the slope, the angle of it. Uh, other dams we have, like uh, Marion Reservoir, for instance, is difficult to take eggs at. There's fish everywhere. You know, that sounds good unless you're trying to catch them in a concentrated area. But every point mm-hmm. you set a trap, uh, there'd be fish. There's fish on the dam, but the dam's very steep. It's got great big riprap on it and everything. Yep. So that's hard to get in. Trap yep. nets, you like to have a good long pull on it, a uh, pretty shallow slope. That way you get a lot of that net working for you. So a lot of it's just, you know, some of it's how, how the lake's built uh, and everything, what makes it easier. Uh, okay. Some of it's location, you know, where's the rest of the crew members? You know, we got people yep. have to travel. You got one guy that's at the lake and then you have to have four or five other people coming from, you know, however far away the next, next district over. So sure. some of that plays into it. But a lot of it is how many fish are there and how quickly can we get in and take you know, meet our, meet our goals, you know, so Mm -hmm. we're really looking at the lakes usually that have some of the better, better walleye populations or sauger populations, I guess, too. So. Interesting. So then from there, how does that data, so you, 
you get this data from those like those lakes that you're netting fish at and you can see the quality of fish or how many and so on and so forth so on the lakes that you're not doing that at how does that dictate when and or how often or how many fish you're going to stock in any one particular lake if that makes sense like uh, you know if you're not netting at clinton for 10 years or five years or three years how does that determine okay maybe we got to put a million in or you know just vice versa right the egg taking operations where we're collecting eggs from these lakes is totally different from the rest of the data that we use to set regulations to set stocking requests and everything else. So that's a little bit different stuff. So okay. even if we're not collecting eggs at those lakes, they're still getting sampled for walleye on a regular basis. Um, so that okay. fall test netting, when we go out and run, run our gill nets or whatever we want to do to get those a little bit out of trap nets, I guess, too. And then you also, you know, there's the science part of it and then everybody's got their feel for it. Sometimes right. You got to look at the weather patterns. You got to look at the conditions and everything else. You talk to your anglers, how's catch been and everything. So there's a whole lot of different things that mm-hmm. come into that. But usually it's on uh, another good indicator that we use. If you're talking about when does a lake need stocked, you can look at your fall test netting stuff to see your overall density. You look at a lot of trends. Usually it's not just one year. You know, you can have a bad day of fishing. You know, it doesn't mean the whole week shot, but you can have one day. Right. I mean, the whole yep. population is has crashed or anything like that. So there's a lot of trend data uh, works with that. Uh, some of the other stuff, you look at stocking success. Uh, we do a lot of that with uh, fall electric fishing, go out with the shocker boats, late September, early October, water's starting to cool down. But you can get an idea about year class strength, how many young fish, you know, how many of those six, eight, 10 inch walleye are you seeing from your uh, stocking success or natural recruitment success that you have yep. coming in on some of those lakes. So it's a, it's a system. Uh, each year you look at all that stuff and you weigh it out. Do you need another stocking? Is it time for one? Uh, or, you know, adult numbers starting to peter out a little bit, you know, or they're not any small fish in the system. So you lo- use a lot of that and you lo- use a lot of different information a lot of different data and everything that you look at to see, you know, which way you, you need to go with that population. Okay. Well, that's interesting. Cause yeah, I've always wondered that it's like, how, how is that determined? And I mean, it's like, I'm out there every day and the only time I've ever really seen anybody doing any samplings are like, I think it was two years ago, the last time I saw somebody out and he was just setting trot lines for catfish or right. something like that. They were just trying to sample channels because the guy that had talked to me follows my facebook page and had had talked to me while i was out there i was just trolling the flats with clients and happened to see i was like i have never seen pool noodles in clinton lake ever like oh who is doing something extremely illegal and i was like oh my god it's kdwp it's usually us doing the 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 illegal stuff so right um so yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And I mean, I'm, I've some stuff I've known or just had a general idea about, and I just try and like, when people ask me, tell them, uh, what I know, but I'm like, well, I, I mean, I, I have no idea. I'm just kind of speculating or getting hearsay and stuff. So that's always really interesting, but I would at some point, hopefully, and now that I've met the new fisheries biologist for Clinton, like to be in touch with him because I mean, yes, you can get some relatively decent data from the Creole reports. Cause that's when I had met him was we were just taking the boat out one day and him and another guy, his assistant, we were there taking the, the Creole surveys from anglers pulling out. And it's just like, you know, you hear a lot of guys, well, the fishing here sucks, but so-and-so catches them every day. And it's like, well, yeah, I feel like 
me versus the fisheries biologist maybe has a better idea of what's going on versus the the fall you know like well, that's that was also interesting to hear is that that's when you do the fall samplings or um not during the spawn is those samplings in the fall and stuff but it's like I do it every day and it's I feel like I have a pretty good finger on the pulse of what's going on with the lake and obviously we do practice uh some selective harvest and stuff so we're not harvesting fish every single day because as a full-time fishing guide that's the issue that a lot of people have that don't like fishing guides is the constant harvest and stuff but the flip side of it and this is what I've always been told in my time living in Kansas and me releasing big fish and choosing to release big fish is that Kansas are put and take fisheries. And that's just like something that I've never really been able to too much get on board with. Uh, I guess it just depends on the species of fish. Uh, and that's just coming from a state that I used to live in that protects certain species, you know, like the, the bass and the walleyes and stuff and perch, they have certain seasons, but it's because they're naturally reproducing. They're not stocked fisheries. So, um, by me selectively harvesting, uh, fish say like for example i let on 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 the body water that i fish i the limit is 15 inches minimum on walleye so i ask the clients because we have that 15 minimum keep fish or harvest fish between 15 and 21 or 22 give or take and then anything over that we just like to put back it would be really hard for me to cut a 28 inch walleye like that one back behind me with that woman holding it that we caught on december 17th last year that was almost 10 pounds in December, no less, that would be really hard for me to cut that fish. So does that hurt or help the fisheries in the end by me being the selective harvest guide, or should I just be like everybody else in the state and just keep everything we catch? (laughs) A lot of it's your conscience. Uh, The thing is with those limits is they're set for a particular goal. You know, some of our lakes have different things and I, and a lot of it too depends on the species of fish too, you know, depending on which ones they are, depending on if they're annually stocked, you know, obviously there's a difference between walleye and crappie in the state, you know, big we time. Have, have crappie that, you know, naturally recruit and everything. And, and we, and our walleye are put grow and take is what I call them because we put them in, we hope they grow. And then, uh, then they're, at some point in their life cycle, they're going to have to be harvested. That's mm-hmm. the ultimate goal. But normally what I say with my walleye fisheries is I have a job for those fish to do before, they get taken out. Ultimately, they need to be eaten. They're great to eat. You know, everybody mm-hmm. likes to eat walleye. And that's that's the end goal of them. You don't want them wasted. You don't want those fish dying in the lake. You don't want them dying of old age and uh, nobody ever gets to take them home. But normally I say I have a job for those fish. Here at El Dorado, I have white perch in the lake. We got those in here in July of 2009. So part of the, the war on white perch was utilizing uh walleye and also wipers the predaceous nature of those two fish to provide additional predation pressure upon white perch mm-hmm. and one way to get the easy way i'll say the easy and the quicker way to get more walleye in the lake instead of trying to increase your recruitment by either getting more habitat in the lake or stocking more fish or whatever is to you know put a larger length limit on it and protect those fish because mm-hmm. that, you can protect them immediately or at least from the time that your limit goes in from 18 to 21 and that's what we needed was bigger fish capable of eating bigger white perch and also increasing the density of those. So that's gotcha. why we went to a 21 inch length limit uh, here at El Dorado. And that was on the heels of what happened over at Cheney. Uh, that was one of the first ones in the state. And 
they kind of played the let's see what happens kind of thing. We've got two different lakes that had them at that time. And Cheney had uh, a little bit more turbid water conditions and the white perch were able to kind of escape predation a little bit more easy uh, at that time because the walleye couldn't see them quite as good as compared to yep. say, Wilson where the other lake was. And that lake also mm-hmm. had stripers. I guess Cheney did have a few stripers at that time. But the big thing is, is you need to have more fish in there uh, to do that. Uh, other lakes, I've been doing something. This is the fourth year of a pilot study I've had going at uh, uh, up at Marion Reservoir. And part of the job, I'll say, what I want those walleye to do before somebody takes them home is I want those fish to spawn. Mm-hmm. Originally in Kansas, you know, that's why we went from a 15-inch length limit to an 18, was to increase, you know, hopefully those walleye would have a chance to spawn at least once. Mm-hmm. before they before they went home with the anglers uh 18 inch you know that may give them a little bit more time but you know if you come out and you watch the nets at hillsdale you go to any other lake and see that there aren't too many girl walleye that are 18 inches i mean that's a no. <laughs> uh, most of those fish are you know 24s 26s 27s up around in there but uh, the 21 does a better job of protecting brood fish than what yep. an 18 is so as far as those limits and everything, that's what I've always said with my fish. But ultimately, they need to be taken home. And the thing is, is when do you take them home? Right. Well, you know, a guy, you know, not picking on you because you're a guide, but a guy that's out there 300 days a year, you you already know, you know, you see a lot of those and you could take those home. But it's, you know, you can catch a fish multiple times and turn it back, you know, but you can only eat it once. Right. So how many times, you know, they're fun to catch put them back in and get that uh, opportunity but you know you're talking you know eight ten eleven year old fish on that and it's it's kind of a neat deal to catch and again at what size at what size oh those 28 26 28 okay so you know you're talking eight eight, nine ten year old fish okay that that was gonna that's a good lead into my next question because i was gonna ask you know age ranges size ranges how does that correlate but then where have you seen in this state where a female walleye would be sexually mature to be that, that broodstock fish? Would it be eight? Is it, are there 18 inch females or is it like at that 21 inch stage where they are mature enough to be able to reproduce? And some of that, it gets kind of iffy too. Sure. Uh, You start talking lengths or you're talking age because just like people, there's a lot of variability in the lengths of a fish. You know, you got a guy that's five foot two and he's 40 years old, or you got some, you know, sixth grade girl that's five foot two and, you know, just a lot of age difference, but the same, same length and everything. So um, Mm -hmm. some of our walleye fisheries, uh, Cedar Bluff has pretty good numbers of uh, smaller, what I would call smaller females. He gets a lot of egg take from 20 and 22 inch fish. Uh, Some of that depends on your growth rates, how quick those fish are growing. Uh, Kerwin's Mm -hmm. kind of the same way. He gets some jumbos up there, but he also gets some good numbers of of smaller uh, girls as well. And some of that is they use trap nets. Uh, I've used mainly uh, multi-filament gill nets to collect my brood fish here at El Dorado. And we use a three inch mesh. That's a pretty good size. So we're targeting, you know, 23 to 28 inch fish with those nets mm-hmm. work pretty good. But uh, even all the years I've done this and everything, if you get a 17 and a half inch uh, female walleye that's spawning, that's, that's kind of on the low side of it, you know? Okay. You get around those 18, 19s, 20s, you know, start about 20s, I'd say, is where, where the, the quality, is that what I want to say? Qualities start mm-hmm. picking up a little bit more, so. Okay. 
Well, that's interesting. Fish yeah. are, it kind of varies a little bit. Um, you know, 21 inch fish, four or five years old, you know, 18 inch fish, three, three and a half, somewhere around in there. Again, depending on the lake and depending on some growth, there's some variability even across, uh, even, even across Kansas. So, okay. So then to double back to the white perch conversation, and that that's kind of what I was thinking in my head too. Um, and maybe, I mean, there's a couple guys in particular that I know, especially that fish Hillsdale a lot that have mm. fished that lake ever since the day that it opened and they know everything there is to know about why things are the way that they are as it pertains to the walleyes and stuff. But it seems like the dividing line in the state for white perch would be like Milford. I don't, Milford does not have white perch, correct? No. no. So it would be every, a lot of the lakes from Milford West have white perch, but then there's not one single lake that I'm aware of uh, east of Milford that has that white perch issue. And that's where that, the, the length limits kind of seem to vary because like you were saying, uh, so for example, Wilson is a 15 inch limit on walleyes, but the water's clear. So, and they also have stripers. So then you have much more predation and easier ways for those white perch to be taken out. So that would maybe account for the 15 inch limit versus 18 to 21 or 22 on other lakes, just based on the, the water conditions. Yeah. The only lakes that we have that have white perch in them, and I'm going to say reservoirs, cause I think there are. Sure. Some, yeah. 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 You yep. know, I think, uh, Kingman state fishing lake is another one that got some white perch in it. And I think there's a few other smaller water bodies where they've, they've got in there, but the only reservoirs we have that have white perch in them is El Dorado, Cheney and Wilson. Okay. So, okay. yeah. I that, feel I thought there were I thought there were more for some reason, but I just I've never spent a lot of time out that way, so right, I, right. I have no idea. And I've always but said so would, I would, would, I would is that why have, is that why Kingman has northerns in it then to help no, with the white it's, perch? It's actually had northerns in it a lot longer than we've had white perch in the state. Okay. So it's one of those unique ones. It's got a, a pretty good spring in the in one end of it that just creates those really good conditions and everything for it. And those are naturally mm -hmm. recruiting fish out there too. So once we get them stocked in there, at least historically, again, things are changing. And that's a big thing too with Kansas and fisheries is aging and, and how things change over time. But historically, uh, once the introductory stocking of, of uh, Northerns would get in there, they'd take off and, and uh, sustain their own numbers by them. But uh, that's pretty but cool. Th there's just a few lakes that have white perch. And as far as the white perch go, I've always said I would rather have zebra mussels than, or uh, yeah, than white perch. They, they oh, yeah. come into the food chain and just totally derail it just a couple yep. steps higher than what the, what the zebra mussels do. So yep. they're bad that's news. Wild. So are they, are they getting ready to revamp Kingman again? Did I see something about that? Yeah, uh, they're in the process of drawing it down. I'm not up on the super greatest details of it, although I think Micah Waters is the fish biologist over there. I think he was going to be up in the drainage on it a little bit, meaning taking a few more boards out of the out of the control structure and mm -hmm. get, getting it going, draining it down and everything. So, yeah, it was several years ago. I forget. It's been eight or ten. It's been years are really starting to gel together anymore, but, uh, not too awful long ago, it, it got, uh, renovated again, but when you get bad combinations of fish that come in there, if you get it full of, uh, common carp and, you know, if shad get up unruly and everything else, you know, sometimes mm -hmm. the clean slate is the way to go. And, you know, you can wait lots of years and try to get things changed around with regulation or harvest and stuff. And sometimes it's just a yeah. lot more efficient to drain her down and and uh, wrote known it out and start over again and that's what they're going to do try to get it back yep. to where it needs to be and 
you know, you get floods. I think that one had some issues too with some big floods that had come in and washed in a bunch of fish that weren't needing to be in there just yet. So, yeah. So, um, I just, that's like, I think it was the first time that they ever drew Kingman down. I mean, this was like forever ago that I saw pictures of some big pike <laughs> from that lake. I mean, but this was forever ago and I haven't really seen too many pictures. I know Lyon County State Fishing Lake, I think also has, that's the only two lakes in the state that I'm aware that have northerns in it still yet. But Clinton had northerns for the first five or seven years that it was open because I have the original map that has a little paragraph written by Richard Sanders himself. And it has all the species that were in the lake. And it's always fun to hear about when it first opened in 74, what was all in there and how fun things were back then. But they just put them in. And then I think I don't think they did much with them after that. And they just let them go die out or do their thing. Yeah, historically they used those a lot for panfish control and everything. So a lot of the sure. a lot of the state lakes had uh, had uh, northern pike in them. Council Grove, I think, still has the uh, state record. I oh yeah, yeah, used yeah. To have that yeah. like years ago, but uh, yeah, mm -hmm. there was actually the pike march that they had up above the reservoir where they would annually raise uh, young northern pike, stock them in there in the spring, and then raise them up, and then just open the open the drain and drain them right into the upper end of, uh, of the Creek there and right into the reservoir, but yep. a little bit better management over the years and different things and fine tuning, uh, fish harvest regulations and everything kind of turned the tide on that just a little bit. And we kind of got away from using Northern pike and predators for that. We started protecting largemouth bass a little bit more using harvest regulations on those to keep those in there, to keep the, keep the bluegill in the, in the crappie a little more under tap, right. so to speak. So, right. Well, and they're naturally reproducing fish as well. The largies as far as I'm concerned, or as far as I know. So speaking of naturally reproducing fish, um, let's kind of migrate from the walleye topic. And I know this, you, you are, it's literally, so guys, it is Friday and it's like one 30 in the afternoon and Craig is working. So Craig, do you have time to talk wipers? Sure. Okay. Sure. Well, we do want to talk about some wipers. We'll kind of get into white bass too uh, a little bit and maybe some crappie before I let him go. But so wipers, wipers are a hybrid of a white bass and a striper. Um, when did Kansas start introducing hybrids to the systems? Oh, it's quite a few years ago. I remember being a kid and catching those when I was in high school and stuff. So that goes back to the mid eighties. They were around before that even so they've been around for quite a while okay well and that i guess like that was one fish that i mean there are very select few bodies of water up in wisconsin and even i think northern illinois um that i have friends that have like caught them through the ice and stuff but they're all privately managed fisheries they're not naturally or natural lakes or anything like that but that was a really fun fish for me to be introduced to in the state of Kansas, just because of how fun they are to catch. And they're, they're, you know, basically everywhere and stuff. But my thing is, is like, I love to know about just why wipers came to be and why stripers can't be what they want to be in every lake, um, so to speak. And I, I mean, I know that I've read some stuff about it and heard some stuff, but, um, where do the, where do the wipers factor into the systems? It's obviously just bait control, correct? And just something for anglers to have fun with? Yeah. Um, I guess the big thing is, is wipers, they grow fast and they get bigger than white bass. And unfortunately, I say, I got to 
white bass end up in a lot of our reservoirs, even though we don't want them in there. In there, you know, we get a lot of bucket yep. biologists and everything that think they've oh, yeah. figured out. <laughs> they'll start moving them around. When I first went to Hillsdale in '97, there was no white bass in Hillsdale. No kidding. I watched those fish come on. We started setting nets in the fall or had always set nets in the fall and you just saw them start building in there, but they yeah. were never put in there. They weren't in that system prior, but they're in there now. Um, if you've got white bass, at least my, my management on those has always been, if you've got white bass and people like fishing for those, you can always sprinkle some wipers in there just to give a little bit of that trophy uh, mm-hmm. status to it. Since they obviously get bigger, normally they grow very, very, very quickly as well and you can control them because they are a hybrid they don't get to going crazy on the on any natural uh, uh productive natural recruitment or anything right. so you can kind of control their numbers with that control their density so you can kind of control their their growth on that but they're very good at eating shad that's what their main uh prey item is is they you know they do great with shad uh 2006 Zebra mussels here at El Dorado were so terrible. The lake, you could see 10, 15 feet down the water was just gin clear and the shad disappeared. We also had a drought at that time too, but the shad disappeared. The white bass did okay. White bass have a wide enough diet, you know, and there that they could keep going and keep their bellies full and everything. And in Mm -hmm. the absence of those shad, the wipers that I had at that time, just, just about dried up and blew away. I mean, they just didn't do well at all. So again, Everybody always says they eat everything and, you know, fish eat fish and it doesn't matter what they are. But as far as going out and focusing on a certain things, wipers are going to eat what's in front of them. But yeah. in the absence of shad, you're not going to have very good, good wipers and everything. So sure. and you can use those to put, like you said, the extra predation on uh, gizzard shad populations in the reservoirs. And that's mm-hmm. a big thing, too, if you don't have enough predation, enough utilization occurring on your shad populations in these reservoirs, you end up with a whole bunch of shad that are this big. Yeah, seriously. Nothing eats them. Yep. And once they get a whole bunch of them that are really, really big, their annual spawns, their uh, productivity goes down because mm-hmm. if there's a whole bunch of great big fish, they're not pumping out a whole bunch of little fish. And it's these little bitty shad. That's what makes, that's what fuels the, the sport fisheries and everything. So we use yep. wipers to eat more shad, to keep shad from getting super big and, and uh, super numerous to keep the productivity of the shad up. So that's, that's a good, good way to use wipers in these reservoirs is just eat more shad. Okay. Well, that's a great point. Cause I, I mean, I kind of go, then I think back to walleyes. So if there was an absence of shad, would it affect the walleyes? Because this early or this, you know, beginning of April, mid-April, especially late April, and then again all the way into November, December, 90% of the walleyes that I clean have crappie in their belly and not shad. Right. So that's why I always wonder like, okay, I mean, it's well, and it's all location-based, and that's what I've told people here, especially in the last couple of weeks that I've posted these pictures of walleyes and the contents of one 20-inch walleye stomach with X amount of crappies in it to where... It's okay. I mean, it's all area specific. So a lot of those are river channel fish and river channel walleyes traditionally from what I see in the early spring and late fall are feeding on small crappies versus in the summertime when they're out in the flats or main lake structure, when the water's warm, that's when you see more schools of shad coming around. And that's when you typically see them on more of a shad bite. So yeah, it's like, could the walleyes survive without the population of shad? just based on the crappies because both are so prolific or, I mean, who knows? Maybe nobody knows. <laughs> yeah. Well, fish eat what's easiest for them to get. 
You know, if they okay. if they can sit there and pick off 20, 20 crappie and keep their bellies full, they're going to do that instead mm-hmm. of going and trying to chase down one shad. Even if the shad tastes better, you know, yeah. um, they're going to eat what's easiest for them to get <clears throat> and to, to keep their bellies full. So some of it's, uh, you know, seasonal as well. Uh, you know, you see it in the fall a lot and everything when the crappies start going back into brush piles and things like that. And the walleye are still pretty, pretty geared up, ramped up and everything. They'll move into those piles and start picking those crappie out of that, too. So a lot oh, of yeah. are they in the same place at the same time and are they easier to catch? Mm-hmm. But yeah, There's a lot of seasonal diet shifts. You know, if you're out there 300 days a year, I don't have to tell you that. But as far as what those fish are feeding on, it changes as the seasons go. You know, as soon yep. as the... Uh, soon as the, the shad start producing and those fish get big enough to get the interest of all your other sport fish and everything. Crank, big crankbaits work good early in the season because they're queuing on last year's shad or last sure. year's crappie. But as soon as the little ones start coming on and there's a whole bunch more of them, you'll see those smaller baits. And then you got to start doing the match the hatch thing and start playing along with the size of the fish that those those predators are wanting to eat on per that time of the year. Yep. It's so true. Great point. So I guess to, well, just like not, I'm sure the reason why I wanted to have you on here, especially, and this is not going to be the first time that we're going to have you on the podcast because I mean, we could sit here and talk for four hours about stuff if we really wanted to, um, because that's why I wanted to have you on here at first was just to talk about the walleye stuff, especially as as it pertained to your April samplings and all the hard work that you'd put into that. But with the wipers, how does, how does the limit from lake to lake vary because you would think that you know if they're stocking two to four million wipers in a lake but the limit's only two versus other lakes that are five that have less stocking how does that kind of play into everything because i love that my lake has a limit of two wipers and i mean i'll be the first one to admit and it's even on my website we just catch and release wipers because the limit's only two and i hate cleaning those things (laughs) but Am I doing a disservice to the system by releasing wipers or should we start harvesting them? Because I know a lot of other anglers do, and I mean, they're not super tough to catch. So I feel like maybe by me letting them go is not a bad thing. But that's why I want you to answer that question, because a lot of people don't like the fact that I let those fish go. Right. Well, you, you can catch a wiper more than once. Yeah. The they're thing very is, if, if you're catching too many and the biologist that's looking at that is seeing that they need to stock more, they can stock more, or they can change the limit. I know it'd be a little tougher to go less than two a day or whatever, but, you know, mm-hmm. those adjustments are made over time. Um, so, again, they're they're made to be harvested at some point, but, yeah. you know, you put it back at 20 inches and you catch it again at 21 inches and then you catch it again at 22 inches, you know, that's just more use use of that fish coming out of there so exactly um, you know i can't really tell you you have to take them you know mm-hmm. but putting because well, every every walleye elitist in the state thinks that the wipers are eating all the walleye's food and that their walleye fishery sucks because of the wipers cough, yeah, cough, milford yeah. milford I, guys <laughs> i've heard that plenty of times and i always say yeah. i can I was a fisherman before I was a biologist so i get it you know it depends on what you're fishing for and what's bothering you when you're out there that's right <laughs> all the wipers stretch my line and and pull my poles <laughs> off the front of the boat i lost my favorite walleye rod or they tie all my uh boards and stuff and knots and stuff like yep. that so yeah, most walleye guys seem to hate them but what they don't understand is the benefits that they get from the you know managing the, the prey managing the the forage trying to say shad here would you get the 
get the wipers working on those shad and everything, the walleye are going to benefit from that just from those fish being there, there too. So, and yep. the reason we've got different, different regulations on those, some of those lakes are pr- pretty good at recruiting uh, from stocking on the wipers so they can support mm-hmm. a five a day. Uh, historically, the two a day came out and I think that one, and again, that was kind of before my time, even before the yep. mid nineties, early nineties, I think is probably late eighties, even when they came out with that. But I think that two a day actually came from one of our commissioners and they understood or learned what it took to make a wiper mm-hmm. and, uh, having at that time, they used to go out and use, uh, native natural brood stocks of stripers in the state. I think it was Glen Elder and some of those lakes, they'd go out and net those fish just like we do with the walleye, take them back to the hatchery, you know, stage them. That's a whole different deal on that, but I uh, bet. to make them. So once they found out how uh, much work went into making wipers, they said, well, it needs to be restrictive at two a day. So we rolled with a two a day statewide for a very, very long time. And more recently, we've had some lakes that you can go more than two, you know, is five mm-hmm. enough? Well, some of those that you might be able to go a little bit more than that, uh, change things up. I think it's different now in the tailwaters. Uh, we remove, remove that two a day restriction on wipers and the tailwaters, just like the link limits on persons. There isn't one now, you know, it's a right. 15 statewide, but you get into yep. the tailwaters and there's no link mm-hmm. limit down there because once they leave the lake, but anyway, the whole part with the wipers was some lakes can sustain some more harvest and they're easily, uh, the populations are easily sustained through, I'll say, put, grow, and take, get the stockings yep. going on that. So, yep. yeah, Marion was one, and that goes back to about 2007. Uh, one of our biologists was there at the time, and the two a day, and he couldn't really pull the reins back far enough because those wipers recruited so well in there that, uh, you know, let's give the anglers more opportunity to take some out and try to, you know, you manage from both ends, so to speak, instead of trying to dial it in exactly of how many you can put in let's just let them take more because we can produce them there's good body condition that's always that thing too do you have too many fish or not enough one of the things you look at is body condition of those fish if they're good fat healthy fish you probably got room for a little more but mm-hmm. if you got a bunch skinny as a rail big heads small bodies and that kind of stuff you probably don't need any more fish in there so it's sure. adjusting those those densities and stuff too so you know, yep. Milford was one, I think more recently went to a five a day. And like I say, I still have two a day here at, at El Dorado, but there's still a five on, uh, up there at, uh, Marion as well. So, yep. Yep. That's what I thought. Well, and that, I mean, I'll just say for my home lake here in town, it's very healthy just based on the fish that we're catching and just everybody else in general too. So that's why I'm hoping to stay in touch with the new fisheries biologists and make sure that things stay the same. And I'll obviously do my part as well to keep it the way it is because, again, Richard Sanders made this place and the state cumulatively uh, what it is today as well as all the other ones, just like yourself with everything that you've been a part of um, these last couple decades here. So I cannot be thankful enough for the way that things are and hope to keep things that way. So, And I like to be an integral part of that as much as I can being out there every day and teaching uh, my customers that are in the boat the same as far as selective harvest or just doing whatever we feel like we need to do. But I mean, there's a reason white bass have a 50 fish limit on the lakes because they're so prolific and they're just everywhere. So those we can, I hate cleaning those too, but we'll take them out. When... I don't think there's a link limit on the white bass, is mm-hmm. there, Brent? Nope. Not even 50? Nope. <laughs> well, I mean, I was like, that's, it's, there's no limit but i that's your boat limit 
that's a well, it's like I always tell people, I'm like, okay, if you want to keep 50 fish, then you got to think about how long you want to stand around after the trip and watch me clean those. Right. <laughs> and they're like, okay, yeah, oh, 50 fish is 100 fillets. So, yeah, okay. That's most people that don't fish don't realize that, but I was trying to remind them of that. But right. that's a lot. Of, and I will say, too, I always encourage all my all my anglers and everybody else's anglers, too, is talk to your local biologist. I mean, uh, Jim's your new guy there. Uh, yep. Richard was one of my mentors. I miss that guy big time, but he was my go-to he guy. Did. I learned a lot from him. He taught me a lot. Um, yeah, and as far as he had things dialed in. I mean, he had a pretty mm-hmm. smooth ship running there, knew knew what was going on and and how to look forward uh, and predict some of that stuff, too. Um data is all great and everything, but there's, you know, the, the art and the science of managing fisheries populations too. I mean, if you go everything and just do everything by the book or whatever, there's still some of that stuff that you pick up over time, uh, observations on the water, different things. It's not really something you can write down or whatever, but just good, good fisheries knowledge that you get over the years. And Richard had a bunch of that. So, but I will say, yeah, your new guy up there is a great guy. I've worked with him when he was a graduate student. He worked on a statewide crappie study um, through the universities and also through wildlife and parks and everything. And he's a good guy. He's got a good handle on it. But yeah, if you talk to your local fisheries biologist, you can figure out what's going on, new things that are going. Uh, maybe you can help him out a little bit too, as far as what you're catching. How many saw guy are you catching on a newly introduced saw guy stocking program and things? It's like on the that. list. Yep. 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 And there's only like 17 of us. I think a lot of anglers think there's like, I don't know, 5,000 people in the fisheries division with wildlife and parks. And there's 17 field biologists like me. We cover the 105 counties. So the guys that are out here in the field, it's a lot less. We have have uh, hatcheries. You know, there's four hatcheries in the state. We have quite a few people that work in the hatcheries making the fish that the field guys request so we can stock them to build these fisheries and everything. Mm-hmm. And we have some research biologists uh work out of the emporia investigations off office there and then we have the you know the administrators and stuff uh guys that keep it running uh keep the wheels from falling off a lot of our federal projects and grants and programs and things yeah. like that as far as the guys in the field the field biologists there's less than 20 of us so you know get to know those guys and uh maybe you can pick up on some good stuff that might help your fishing too yep well, and that's my thing too, is especially when it pertains to the internet and social media and Facebook and all the bucket biologists and the internet biologists or guys that have fished the lake for 30 years since the day it opened and they know this and that. It's like, let's just talk to the guys that have the data. It's, I mean, I feel like I have a lot of data, but I'm just out there fishing. I don't keep these fish or sample and measure every single one or keep a journal like I probably should have. I mean, that would be very Richard Sanders things to do. I still, like I told you when we talked last time, have a scanned notebook, two notebook sheets of paper with his handwritten numbers for wiper stockings. And I'll forever hold on to those. And I wish we had the time to screen share those just so you could see them. But it's, um, if, if you have questions about stuff like that, I'm speaking to everybody listening to this. Um, it just takes a simple email and I'm sure that Maybe some fisheries biologists uh, contact info are easier to find than others. I know that in between the Richard Sanders stage, going from him to three years later than Travis for a very short period of time, and now Jim, I didn't get Jim's contact info until you and I talked last December. And 
uh, three years prior to that was when I met Travis when we caught a big flathead. And even still after that, it was everything was in limbo. So I was like, I don't know who I ever need to talk to. <laughs> so I'm just going to start talking to Craig. <laughs> All you got to do is go to your uh, current um, Kansas fishing regulations. And I think they're towards the back. There's a list and it lists all the fisheries biologists in the States got their office and their phone numbers. So yep, that's all in there. And of course the Google machine put in, put in, uh, <laughs> you know, Marion reservoir biologist or something and stuff will pop up. But yeah, look in your fishing regulations or just call any of the wildlife and parks offices and ask, ask for us. We're Good deal. Well, I, w- I won't keep you any longer, man. Like I said, we could sit here and talk for another 45 minutes to four hours about stuff, but I really appreciate appreciate you taking the time out of your day to have this first conversation. And uh, especially now that we're kind of getting into peak fishing season, April into May, May into June, uh, especially with the walleyes and stuff. I usually skip the summer. I'm not a huge fan of summer. And then again, as we get into the fall, I feel like after last fall and then this April, this past April that we've just gone through and then going into this November, it's going to be a wildly insane walleye year for me. So I will be looking forward to talking more about that, but yeah, in the there's meantime, some new again, stuff just... going on, new studies going on, you know, our division's looking at some new stuff and, and again, things are changing. These lakes aren't getting any younger and usually they change. And I have guys tell me that on a regular basis. Well, I just don't catch fish like I did 20, 30 years ago. And I'd say, well, it's not the same lake that it was 20 or 30 no. years ago. <laughs> Things are changing. Uh, unfortunately, we do have white perch. We got zebra mussels. You know, we've got Asian carp, silver carp, different things that show up that are all. And we got live scope. Live scope's changing everything too, right? Well, technology. You know, that's a big thing too, as far as how things are coming along and and just putting a different twist on things as well. So yeah, things yep. are changing, and you got to be able to either you know get on the bus or get run over. I guess so. It's yep. Or just get shut up on social media (laughs) when they start talking, talking all that shit. But again, a whole other conversation, but it's already two o'clock here on a Friday. I'm sure you're probably getting ready to get out of here and start your weekend, but I really appreciate the time, Craig, and look forward to talking to you again soon. Anytime. I had a good time. Yep. You bet, man. Well, I'll get a list of things going for the next chat and I'll be bothering you probably sooner than later to get another one going because this this was fun and everyone who's listening to this is going to learn a lot and really enjoy it. So I appreciate it, buddy. Always enjoy it. Thanks for the opportunity. You bet, man. I'll talk to you soon. All right. See ya. Thanks, Craig.